Good morning, everyone. All right, let's begin class with prayer this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come together and study today. We pray that your angels and your spirit will join us, that our minds will be enlightened, that we can see you more clearly, and by beholding, we can be changed to experience your love in our lives. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. And we are doing lesson number three in our quarterly, Love and Loving, John's Epistle. Uh, The lesson title is Walking in the Light, Turning Away from Sin. And if somebody would uh, look at the Sabbath lesson there and read the entire section starting with, in 1982, somebody read that for us. In 1982, Talk about tempting faith. Unfortunately, people do the same thing with sin, thinking that they can stare it in the face and still get away unharmed. Unlike the gun, however, sin, unless dealt with, definitely will kill them. So what do do y'all think about that? Stupid, Stupid, she says. (laughs) (laughs) Sin is coming from the outside. Sin is coming from an outside source, randomly. Hmm. Can you stare at sin and not be harmed? No. Yes. <laughs> well, so say that louder. You don't participate in it. If you don't participate in it, she says. Staring has the idea of longing after it, as opposed to just glancing at it. Okay. Stare at it. Okay. What about uh, 1 Corinthians 4, 9? It says that this world is a spectacle, a theater unto angels and to men. What have the angels been looking at for the last 6,000 years? Have they been, you think they've been keeping their eyes fixed on what's happening down here? Yeah, have the angels in heaven been harmed by watching what's going on down here? Saddened. Saddened, Okay. Are they going to be destroyed by watching what's going on down here? No. 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 So, the ones that have been reigned in heaven by watching the whole progression and what Christ has done and all that Christ has accomplished and so forth, ultimately they have been solidified in their loyalty by seeing the, the, the distinction between God's character of love and his methods and Satan's methods and principles. So they, they've learned and been strengthened. You're right. Um, hmm. How could you make the analogy a little tighter then? This analogy of sitting in front of a loaded shotgun. Well, you're purposely putting yourself in harm's way. Would 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 it be a little tighter if you sat in front of the little shotgun with your finger on the trigger? Isn't that really what what it is for our lives? Don't we have to sit and pull the trigger? Can the devil force any of you to sin? No, no, no. Because why why can the devil not? What's the reason the devil can't force any of you to sin? Or let me put it this way. Maybe it's a better way to phrase it this way. What's the reason you have the choice to say no to sin? Adam had the choice because he was created that way. Our choice to say no isn't because Adam was created that way. Once Adam sinned, what happened to his nature? Now, could Adam or the rest of us, without something going on from God... Could we say no to sin? No. 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 So the reason we can say no to sin is not because we were created that way in Adam, but because of something Christ has done for us. It's through Christ and his victory and the grace of God and the working of the Holy Spirit that empowers us or enables us to have that freedom to say no to sin. On our own strength, we can't say no to sin, can we? Would that be too in the very beginning put enmity between... Yeah, right there, as as soon as they sinned, there would have been a complete unity between sinful man and sinful angels, except the Holy Spirit interceded in the heart of man and put a desire for good, a longing, a wooing. Why did he intercede there and not in the angelic hearts? I mean, this wasn't in the notes, but since you brought it up, when minds just go this way, don't they? Yeah, why did he intercede there? He did intercede in the angelic hearts? Yes, he did. When? 
Yeah. So in heaven, do you find Jesus and the Father working with the angels that had questions and trying to present the truth and, and trying to win them back. Yeah, we find that going on. But there comes a point after which no amount of intercession, pleading, presentation of truth, reaching out has any, any impact. What? What is that point? When we make the choice. When we make the choice? When your capacity to think that choice is so degraded that you can't think that thought anymore. She says when your capacity is so degraded. In other words, when we have persisted in sin so long that we actually destroy the very faculties that recognize and respond to truth, that no amount of truth, no amount of love, no amount of revelation can get through to us because we've destroyed the very faculties that recognize it. Have, have you not known people like this? I have. I, I work with people like this. They have so degraded their, their brains you can't reach them. Anything you present to them, they twist, they distort, they, they warp. Yeah, and then there comes a point, there's, no, there's nothing more that can be done for people like this. The angels that had fallen had gotten to that point. But Adam and Eve were deceived by Satan's sophistry, the heights and the depths of the love of God they did not know. There was hope for them in revelation of God's character of love. So, let's go into Monday's lesson. And let's start with 1 John 1, 6 through 10. And we'll read straight from the scriptures. 1 John 1, 6 through 10. Somebody uh, with a good, nice voice, read that for us, please. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His word is not in us. And before we go on, any, any thoughts that you want to comment about this passage? We're going to spend a good bit of time probably the next 30, 40 minutes, exploring this passage. But any, any thoughts you want to comment about? I love where it says that he is faithful and just. It, it, it outlines what God's justice is in this, in this uh, last bit of this passage. That his justice is to forgive us and to cleanse us, to heal us. Oh, I like that. Justice. What does God's justice look like? Forgiveness and cleansing. Oh, I like it. Uh, it, says in, it says in Monday's lesson, it says the first statement discusses fellowship with God. People claim to have fellowship with God, but in reality they walk in darkness, which means that they really aren't walking with God. In contrast, walking in the light results in true fellowship. Those who do that are cleansed from their sins. Therefore, to walk in darkness has to do with living in sin. Living in sin and claiming to have fellowship with God is, according to John, a lie. So with all this in mind, what do you think it means to walk in darkness? With all these things we've read, what does it mean to walk in darkness? Think widely. Think of your Bible. Let your, let your computer start reaching into the Scripture and pulling up Scripture texts that have to do with light and darkness. And what kind of things start popping into your head? How about Isaiah 60, verse 2? Darkness covers the people and gross darkness the people. That's what it says in Isaiah 62. What's that talking about? Or, G, or John, chapter 1, the Gospel of John. Jesus is the light which lightens all men. The light has shone into the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. The difference between truth and error. The difference between truth and error. Do you see that, that the, the lesson says that the darkness is living in sin? But, but Isaiah... And the, and the Gospel of John are suggesting that, that there's something else going on here. That darkness covers the people. Jesus is a light that lightens the world, but the, shines into the darkness. But the darkness doesn't understand or comprehend it. What is the, the darkness over? What is the light over? What is it that Satan is trying to darken our minds about? What is it that Jesus is trying to enlighten our minds about? Saw a hand. Yes. It uh, seems like what I did night hiking. Without lights, you walk around in the dark at night, you get very accustomed to it, you get to looking at everything that you can see, and you think you're doing very well. You're walking along, you navigate, you 
see what you want, and if it intrudes, you really don't want it there because you're seeing so well without it, and then you can't see as well with it. Then if you happen to be able to walk there again in the daylight, you start noticing how much you missed what you didn't know. But while you're doing it at night, you think involved, and you're perfectly capable, perfectly fine. It's only when the light is shined that you figure out, hmm, there was a whole lot more here to know about. And so as Satan is darkening our minds about what God is like, we get very comfortable thinking we know what God is like, and we're missing an awful lot of the picture. Oh, I love it. I love it. You already said he's now, he's now added a, an insight that maybe the issue that's, that the world is in darkness over and that Christ is trying to enlighten us over is what God is like. And that we walk along in the darkness thinking that we can see. Well, what is the message to the Laodicean church in Revelation chapter 3? You think you're rich and you need of nothing, but you are poor, wretched, blind. Does that mean you're in the light or you're in the dark? And are these people, this Laodicean people, are they the agnostics and the atheists who deny God? Or are these the church people? Whoa, wait a minute. Darkness covers the people, gross darkness people. Jesus is the light. The light is where it shines into the darkness. The darkness doesn't understand it. And at the end of time, Jesus is saying, you guys are blind. You guys still aren't seeing. The light still haven't gone on. It's the time we open our eyes. Yes. Which is really what we see in most of Christianity, which calls itself Christianity, which is totally against what God is really like. But that's what we consider the light is Christianity. That those are the ones that are walking in the light and they're really walking in the darkness. Yes. In back right there, yes. Ephesians chapter five, verses eight to fourteen has a very good description of the uh, darkness and the light. Read it for us, please. Okay. It says, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, proving what is acceptable to the Lord, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light, for whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore he says, Awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. Ooh, is that not good? Now, now did, was, was your computer like just grabbing like, as she's reading, all these other Bible texts are starting to fill in around that? Like, awake you that sleep? Did you think of a parable of the ten virgins and there's five foolish and five wise and, and how many of them were sleeping? What You mean the actual wise ones were asleep? And what do we do when, our, when we're asleep? Our eyes are closed. <laughs> we're, not, we're not getting any light. And so, wake up, you that are sleeping, you Laodiceans who are blind. Wake up. Let the light shine in. This is what God is calling us to do. And so, is, is living in darkness merely the acts of sin, or is darkness something else that results in acts of sin? So what does it mean to live in darkness? Have a wrong picture of God. Have a wrong picture of God. Wow. Any thoughts about that? Yes. I was going to say that darkness, if God is light, then darkness is separation from God. Okay, and what is it that separates man from God? I heard somebody say sin. In, in the Garden of Eden, didn't mankind get separated from God? Mankind as a race, where all descendants from Adam, get separated from God by something that happened in Eden. Prior to, prior to whatever happened in Eden, didn't God come every day, talk to them face to face in the cool of the day? They had this relationship that was open and free. But something happened, and, and there was a separation that occurred. What was the initial thing that caused the separation? They believed a lie. That was it. You see, they believed lies. And then once the lies were believed, then the mind started to close to God. I don't trust you, God. The heart closes. See, because I believe he's not good. I believe he's bad. 
And so it was the believing of the lies that resulted in the broken circle of love, which resulted in fear. They're running and hiding from God rather than running to God. Now, after they sinned even, after they believed the lies, after they've taken the fruit, was there any reason for them to actually be afraid of God? Or was God their best friend in the universe? Only hope in the universe. But what are they now doing? They're running from the only one who can save them. You see how warped our minds get, how darkened their minds were. I mean, think about this. They had the privilege of spending time with God in the garden, walking with him, talking with him, seeing him face to face. Do you think they might have had at least a little concept of what God was like? And as soon as they sinned, did their minds become so darkened, they're running from him now. How darkened had their minds gotten? All the truth that they had, had known about him, suddenly, because of the lies believed, their minds are dark and they're running from him. And mankind has been running from God ever since. And by the way, Satan has practiced his art of lying for the last 6,000 years. You know, when you practice, you get better at things. Satan is a better liar today than he was. And the lies are, are, are potent. Look 2,000 years ago, a group of people blessed with the oracles of God and the prophets of God and the spirit of God and all the things about God. And Satan was such a good liar to those people, that all those things were designed to enlighten their mind about God, darken their mind, and they hated God when he came and they killed him. That's a pretty good liar, isn't it? Take the very things that are designed to enlighten us and turn them around so it actually darkens our minds. How has that happened in Christianity? How has that happened in the Adventist Church? Can you name a couple of things that were, were given by God to enlighten us that are actually used now to darken the mind? Sabbath. The Sabbath. The Sabbath, a gift given in Eden, representing the freedom, as we, just to cut the whole story short, because we don't have time to go into the whole thing today. But on day one through six, what do we learn about God? Power. That He's powerful. Every day He's creating. This is power. This God's powerful. What do we learn about God on day seven? That He gives His creatures freedom. I rest my case. Think it through for yourself. No pressure. The Sabbath exists because God is love and gives freedom to his creatures. It's his character we learn on day seven. That's why it's so holy. But what do we do with the Sabbath? We take it and turn it into a day of rules. Day of things you can't do. Day of works you have to abide by. And we even say this. It is an arbitrary test of obedience. There is no reason for the Sabbath. God gave it to test you, and if you don't keep the Sabbath, he'll use his power to kill you. Now we've just darkened the mind with the day that's to set us free. Instead of a day of freedom, it's a day of enslavement. This is what it was to the Jews in Christ's day. So he takes the truth and turns it to darken the mind. How about the greatest moment of truth in universal history? Where was that? Calvary, the cross. It was the greatest revelation of truth about God we could see. And what do we get instead? Oh, it was Christ dying to appease the angry wrath of his father and hold back the father's anger from killing us. And we even have versions that say God was executing his son in our place on the cross. And now instead of a God of love, we have a God of wrath and anger who is appeased by the blood of his son. Paganism wrapped up in Christianity. It's a lie. It darkens the mind, keeps us afraid of God. Now, don't anybody walk out of here thinking I'm suggesting Christ did not have to die or that we could be saved without Christ's death. We could not be saved without the death of Christ. Everybody hear that very clearly? I can't tell you how many times I, I have classes and people walk out and go, Dr. Jennings didn't think Christ had to die. <laughs> it's not true. We could not be saved without the death of Christ. But we take a truth that Christ has given us and the devil twists it and then we promote a lie about it. I'm trying to demolish those distortions about why Christ had to die, not the fact that he had to die. So let's go on with this text. What does it mean to live in sin? Well, it means to have darkened minds. And the text suggests that it's, it's sinful living. Well, certainly if we have darkened minds, we have lives that will have sinful living if we have darkened minds. But what does that look like? Does it look like smoking and drinking and carousing? Violence, not coming to church, lying, cheating, stealing, breaking the ten, basically, breaking the ten. When John wrote his epistle, and when Paul was writing to the various churches he was writing to, were they primarily dealing with the, the carousing around type stuff? There was a little of that going on. Or was it Judaizers they were dealing with? 
Anybody heard the term Judaizers? And what does it mean to be a Judaizer in, in Paul's day, in John's day? To try to do all the Jewish laws and rules. Were these people, if you looked at the Judaizers externally, would you say that they, they're, they're sinful living going on there? Those who put Christ on the cross, would you say, those people who, who rejected Christ and crucified him, would you say they were in darkness and living in sin? They were, weren't they? Sure. But if you looked at the external way they carried out their lives, what would you see? I mean, how many of those could come in and we'd want to vote him in as elder? Right? Double tithe paying, keep eating the right foods, never. I mean, they won't even walk more than like, what, 100 paces on Sabbath because they're not going to work. And I mean, all the things that they were doing, they're really strict. They're, they're obedient. But they were in darkness. He was called a sepulchers. Whited sepulchers, yeah. So what is the greatest of all the commandments? Love the Lord your God. And the second? Love your neighbor as yourself. Um, so what might it look like then to be in darkness? How about seeking glory for self rather than glory for God? A church musician who plays to be seen and praised each week in church. A pastor who preaches to be recognized and get promoted and to have the largest church with the most power in the conference or to get the promotion to conference president. A church leader who exercises authority over those who disagree with, with him and coerces his constituency to do what he wants. Pressuring. How about that? Is that living in light or living in darkness? Darkness. Darkness. So what does it look like to walk in the light? Well, John is clear. His whole book is all about it. Love God and love others more than yourself. Selflessness. Selflessness. This is what the light looks like. Dr. Jim. Yes. So I hear you saying that uh, uh, I read Morris Law. He said that our righteousness is evil. Our righteousness is light. You know, if we're trying to be good, there's always a self-motive, you know. So, I don't know if you agree with that, but... I agree with the idea that if we're doing it for our own motivation, our own heart's sake, and our own desire to make ourselves better, um, so, you know, th- then there's a selfish motive to it. But if we're doing whatever we're doing because we have love for God or love for other people, and that's why we're doing it, then there's not. We can do the same behavior. I mean, you can go and volunteer at the soup kitchen downtown because you care about people and you want to help them. Righteousness. You can volunteer at the soup kitchen downtown because you're running for mayor and you want to get votes. Selfishness. Same behavior, two different motives. Isn't that true? Yeah. And so I don't know that we are very good at reading the motives of the heart. We're still trying to get that heart motive meter thing that we can you know, sell at Walmart, get one for nine ninety nine. you can shoot it at people and read the motives of the heart. That'd be nice to have, wouldn't it? Yeah. yeah. I know a lot of people in the dating scenario would like to have one of those. Okay? Yeah. <laughs> the angels in heaven at the beginning of this could have used one of those with Lucifer. What's the motive of his heart going on here? Isn't that what happened, though? I mean, isn't that what immediately happened when they believed the lies they lost the capacity Act and self-lessness. They were no longer capable. Exactly right. No longer capable. That's exactly right. Think about your own lives, guys. Think about the moment. There's all, most of you, I think everybody here has had a moment somewhere where you were really in a moment of love for another person. Whether it's your spouse, whether it's one of your children, whether it's your parents, somebody you had love, you really cared about that other person more than yourself. In that moment of love, did, did you have any fear? No. Conversely, think about times when you've been afraid. Afraid of physical harm, afraid of, uh, of uh, being late for an appointment, afraid of uh, not making your bills this month, whatever kind of fear it might be. Afraid of what people are going to think about you. And then think about how you treated the people around you. Had to cut somebody off in the interstate to be sure you got there on time. Had to get, jump somebody in the line to get out to check out in time. I mean, as the fear goes up, does, does love go down? The perfect love casts out all Fear. See, they're inversely proportional and neurologically, actually, in the brain, the love circuits of the brain calm or turn off the fear circuits. And when the fear circuits fire, they paralyze the love circuits. So, yeah, there's a real neurobiological relationship here.
finish up Monday's lesson, a couple things. Do you hear hope in this passage that we just read in 1 John? Did you hear hope? And why is it important that we acknowledge our sinfulness? Why is that an important thing that we must acknowledge? Why? What happens what happens if you have cancer and you refuse to acknowledge you have cancer? Yeah. Yeah. So does your acknowledgement cure you? It leads you to Yes. And taking the remedy. So our acknowledgement of our condition leads us to find a solution outside ourselves. And of course that solution comes from God. All right, Tuesday's lesson. Somebody read the first paragraph, Tuesday's lesson, starting it's clear. It's clear that in these verses, John is dealing with the seriousness of sin. How does he understand sin? In 1 John 3, 4, he equates sin with lawlessness. According to 1 John 5, 17, sin is wrongdoing or unrighteousness. It is a departure from the will of God as revealed to us in Scripture. Sin also is opposed to truth. It alienates from God the person who commits sin. And this alienation leads to spiritual death. Sin, in the singular, may point to the separation of the sinner from God. In the plural, sins, it may point to sinful acts. However we view it, one thing is certain. Sin is real, and unless dealt with, it will destroy us. Oh, did you love the way that paragraph ended? Isn't that, I mean, we got to give... Praise where praises do, and that is just a wonderful way to state it in our quarterly sin. If unless dealt with, will destroy us. That is an absolute true statement. Why do you think then so many people make it out that God is the one who destroys us? Or did I misunderstand somewhere along the way? <laughs> Have you ever heard that in the end the wicked are destroyed by God? In order to be just, He must destroy. But the quarterly, I think, gets it right here that sin destroys us. Which way do you think it is? God does God is the destroyer or sin is the destroyer? Sin. Yeah. Hmm. Does it make a difference if we believe that sin unremedied will destroy us versus God must destroy the unrepentant? Does it make a difference to us which way we believe? Yes. What difference? Why is it important to, to get this right? Our attitude towards God. Our attitude towards God. See, in the version that says that God, in order to be just, must inflict punishment, execute, kill, destroy the wicked in the end. It comes out from God. In that version, where's the source of death? God becomes the source of death. Now, who do you think in this war between Christ and Satan wants you to see God as the great cosmic grim reaper? Yeah, that's his, that's his characterization of God. God is evil. God is the grim reaper going around to, to kill people. It's a distortion. It's a lie. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that the wages of sin is death. Or in James chapter 1, sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Or Galatians says that the man who sows to the spirit, spiritual nature, from the spiritual nature will reap life. But he who sows to the carnal nature, from that nature will reap destruction. You see, our condition... The condition we find ourselves in ultimately determines we are either going to be healed because we trust God and he will heal us. We don't heal ourselves or we won't be healed. We will refuse his remedy, refuse his presence, refuse his power in our lives. And then our condition, which is terminal, takes its full course. We ourselves do it. Yes, we ourselves do it by refusing what God would want to do in us. So the Bible says, what is sin? What is sin? Transgression of the law in the King James Version. The lesson quotes more from a modern version and says sin is lawlessness out of the same passage that King James says transgression of the law. Lawlessness or without the law or being outside the law. What law? The law of love. Now tell me about this law. Where did this law come from? It is God. It is God, she says. What do you mean? The law of love is God. What do you mean? God is love. So are you telling me that the law of God is not something he created? No. He didn't impose it? He didn't enact it? He is it. He is it. Whoa. Oh man, this is mind-boggling. Because you know the traditional view has that God is the great creator, and as the great creator, he created law. 
And then when he created law or enacted law in order as the great lawgiver, he has to impose penalties to enforce his law. Isn't that the traditional view? But wait, you're suggesting that the law of love emanates from his personhood. He is love. And then if he is love, and I agree, and I'm convinced that he is, when he creates as the God of love, what would you suspect the template upon which he creates things to run would be? The law of love. It's the actual design template. It emanates from him. This is why all things hold together in him. Because all things emanate from his character of love. And this is the principle upon which life is designed to operate. I see some head shaking. No, anybody confused? It's okay. Okay, why don't anybody explain that further? See, I don't want to always do the explanations. See, people need practice explaining this stuff. So somebody explain to us how this law of love looks and how and why life is based on it. It's other-seeking, he said, other-centeredness. Paul in Romans 1.20 says God's divine nature is seen in what he has made so that men are without excuse. God's nature is love. How do we see that? In all of the examples that you've given us, when we look at nature, and since God created, nature is perfectly, not in a sinful world, but in its original condition, it's perfectly consistent with God, what God is. It continues to give. It's a cycle. It's circular. What you told us about the water flowing, going down, if it stops, it becomes stagnant. But if it keeps flowing, goes down to the ocean, goes up into the clouds, rain again, it's all circular. Um, and it also purifies itself, too. Isn't it? Notice that? In the giving of itself, water in the constant circulation is renewed and cleansed. You see, the, the same water that you're drinking today is the water that you know Noah brushed his teeth with. And that's really interesting. Unless it goes out, it can't come in. You give to receive. Yeah. Our blood cleans itself too in the circulation. Circulation, yes. It's the circulation, the never ending circle of giving and beneficence. It's good. So, Satan's version says if you choose to violate God's law, God, in order to be just, must use his power to punish you. Did you all know that Satan says that? If you hear it preached that God, in order to be just, must punish sin, sin has to be punished. That distortion, misrepresentation, originated with Satan in heaven. I'll read to you out of a book called Desire of Ages. I think it's stated so well here, page 761. In the opening of the great controversy, Satan had declared that the law of God could not be obeyed, that justice was inconsistent with mercy, and that should the law be broken, it would be impossible for the sinner to be pardoned. Every sin must meet its punishment, urged Satan. And if God should remit the punishment of sin, he would not be a God of truth and justice. This version, this idea that God has to to punish sin is based on the arbitrariness allegation. The allegation that God just creates a law and therefore must impose penalties, rather than the truth that God's law is love and it emanates from him. And life is designed, constructed, built to run upon this. And if life is built to run upon it, if you step outside of it, then what happens? The wages of sin is death. Like respiration. If you decide you don't want to breathe anymore, well, that's one of the laws of life. You can't live without breathing. You step outside of that law, God doesn't have to punish you. Death happens. Christianity, to be able to swallow the pill that God is a God who punishes and destroys, has said, but he does it in sadness and with tears in his eyes. Mm-hmm. And so they can reconcile that he has to do it, but he's very sad to do it, rather than he's angry when he does it. And it still misses the understanding of God's true nature and character, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And why does he have to do it in their version? In their version, even though he's sad to do it, why does he have to do it in their version? And justice requires it because why? What did they not have happen to them that the saved have happened? They didn't get the blood payment made, you see. So God in justice has to take their blood, has to kill them because the penalty has to be paid and they wouldn't accept Jesus' payment. And so even though he's sad to do it, you see, when you put the pieces together, he's not sad. He's a, he's a blood sucker in this version. He's got to get the blood. 
He's got, they've got to pay. That's how it, and it's really ugly. If you allow your mind to think it through, it's ugly, is it not? God's justice does not punish. It is saying when you won't accept that, he's just causing to just let us go. Exactly right. Exactly right. For those who, who get our notes, in the notes, I've got a whole bunch of quotes I'm not going to read that talk about the law of love is the law of life. And all life, all health, all happiness of the universe are dependent upon harmony with the law of love, which is the law of life for the universe. Don't have time to read those. Russell. Tying in with that, I think one of the greatest examples of the law of love and the law of life being linked is the resurrection of Christ. You brought this up several times before that. I have often been taught that Christ's resurrection was a reward from God for a pleasing and fragrant sacrifice being made. But the truth is, is that he resurrected because he completely embodied God's law of love. And life happens because of that. Life, life is the default template for the universe. That's right. Life, life is. We are dying because we are out of harmony with the law upon which life is designed to operate. Christ, everybody agree that Christ perfectly lived out God's law. And that law is the template for life. Therefore, the grave couldn't hold him. And it says in Psalms uh, 19.7, I believe, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The law of the Lord restores, regenerates, heals, recreates. Love is life. And so when Christ lived it out perfectly, the grave couldn't hold him. He was coming back. Because, because he perfectly restored the principles upon which life were based. And that's why it says in the scripture, he destroyed death and brought life and immortality to life. 2 Timothy 1.10. Destroyed death. Unlike the other version, which says, he paid the death penalty by dying the second death. That's not scripture. That's not scripture. That's tradition based on Bad theology based on this substitutionary idea that you have to have the second death penalty paid in your behalf, and if you don't get the second death paid, then you're going to have to die the death penalty. But the scripture teaches, 2 Timothy 1.10, that he destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light. It's a big difference. Huge difference. I think it's interesting that it doesn't say he created life and immortality life and immortality, he brought it to life. That means he showed how it happens. Yeah. Showed the light on it. He didn't just suddenly make something happen that wasn't instituted before. It's just the way it is. It always was that way. And he showed the light on the way it is. And by loving perfectly, he overcame the infection of fear and selfishness, which is the basis of death. So he destroyed the very elements of Satan's kingdom that infects our hearts. And restored love into the human species. Remember this battle that Christ waged. You see it in in, uh, Gethsemane. You see it in the wilderness. You see it at the cross. Christ is in in a spiritual battle. He's battling. He's being tempted. You look at the agony in Gethsemane. Understand where that battle is taking place. That battle is not taking place in his divine nature. That battle is taking place in his human brain. That's where he's fighting that battle. Right there. And unlike any other human being, Christ lived out love perfectly. Total harmony with God's principles of other-centered love. Um, in, in Tuesday's lesson, it says, Forgiveness of sins has become possible because of Christ's death on the cross. The shedding of his blood is the sacrifice. Because we have transgressed the law and therefore deserve death. He died in our place and has set us free from the eternal con- condemnation that our transgression otherwise will bring us. More so, his blood purifies us from every sin. Now, how can we understand that in a way that it's in harmony with Scripture? Conversely, how do we often understand that in a way that misrepresents God and obstructs obstructs the healing process? There's a way to understand that entire paragraph that is totally in harmony with Scripture. It doesn't necessarily easily lend itself to it, but there is a way to understand that. How do we understand that this is in harmony with Scripture? All right, I'll let you cogitate on that. That'll be your homework assignment. All right, why was forgiveness of sins not possible without the death of Christ? Was God forbidden, prevented, restricted, unable to be forgiving without the death of Christ? No. Was Christ's death somehow designed to get God to extend forgiveness to sinners? No. 
Or was the death of Christ somehow the means employed by God to convey His forgiveness to sinners? There's a huge difference. The traditional view, God couldn't forgive unless Christ died to pay the blood penalty. But the Bible teaches God was in the Son, reconciling the world to himself. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare a son but gave him up, how will he not also with him give us all things? Christ said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Everything I do, I do at the direction of the Father. I speak nothing on my own. In Hebrews 1.3, he's an exact representation of the Father. Christ was the fulfillment of God's will for the human race. So everything you see done in, in Christ is evidence of God's heart towards mankind. Is that not right? Yes. yes, Christy. But he forgave before he died. Yes, he forgave before he died. Did he not? Yes. On the cross. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Now, who was the one speaking those words? Was he less God than the God in heaven? Or was he fully God? Did he have the right to forgive? Remember when they lowered the paralytic through the roof? He said, such that you might know that the Son of Man hath authority on earth to forgive sins. Take up your bed and walk. Those men who put him on the cross, had God the Son forgiven them? Yes, Father, forgive them. They don't know what to, they're forgiven by the Son, who has the authority to do so. Were they now saved? No. no. See, this whole distortion is, well, our problem is we have broken the law and we need legal pardon. We need the lawgiver to forgive us. We need to stamp pardon by our record book. No, they had that. They weren't saved. Why were they not saved if the God the Son extends forgiveness and forgives them? His heart is forgiving. Why are they not saved? Because they didn't open their heart to receive what God was offering them. It says in Romans 2, verse 4, the kindness of God leads us to repentance. You see, God's forgiveness extended. We see it in His heart. We see it in Christ. That constant loving attitude toward us, when we see it, leads us to repentance. And repentance, we open the heart and trust to God. Then a supernatural work occurs. We get regenerated. We get healed. We get restored. The law of love gets written in again. This is the the gospel message. Last paragraph in Thursday's lesson says, we're jumping to Thursday to bring this over to what we're talking about. We talk about Jesus as our advocate and take great comfort in the fact that he is instrumental in providing forgiveness for our sins. We must be careful not to give the impression that the Father is mean and harsh and must be persuaded by a go-between to forgive us. Such a picture of God is unwarranted. He is the one who sent Jesus on our behalf. Also, a few verses earlier, we were were told that he is faithful and just to forgive and cleanse us. Jesus does not have to pacify the Father. On the contrary, the Father is the one who has revealed, through Jesus, his desire for our salvation. Well stated. Isn't it refreshing to see this in the quarterly yes amen yes thank you it's about time yes i think it you know the truth is percolating up right (laughs) yes it's it's wonderful lesson's absolutely right on this point so if if jesus didn't have to die to somehow work on the father how is jesus death connected to forgiveness and then in thursday's lesson we also read this a little before this wonderful passage we just read a little before it we read this Our forgiveness is secured because through his sacrificial death, Jesus brought about propitiation or atonement. This means that he paid the penalty for our sins. The debt that we owed, which we could never pay, Jesus paid for us. Does that help us with that passage we read just before? Is that contradictory or confusing? This, this passage is, is difficult. Is this, a, is this an enlightened passage? There's a lot of difficult words here that make it hard to understand. When you read that, clear, lights go on, you have clear comprehension. Or is it like, whoa, man, this is like a fog is coming over my brain. It's the darkness. Yeah, yeah. So, this penalty payment, did he pay the father? No, no. Did he pay the law? No, no. Hmm. And think about the penalty payment. Do we believe, as Christians, that God forgives us our debts as we forgive our debtors? Do we believe that or not? Yes. That was kind of weak. Do we believe that or not? Yes. Okay. okay. We believe that God forgives us our debts as we forgive our debtors. If you have a, a debt, a debtor that cannot pay and you forgive his debt, can you also go and collect it? 
How about if somebody owes you something, $10,000, they can't pay it, but you're not going to forgive. So they have a brother that's very rich, comes in, pays the $10,000. After you get your $10,000 payment, can you rightly go to the man who owed you and say, hey, now that I've been paid, I forgive you your debt? Can you do that? No, no. Why do we say that God forgives us our debt, but Christ paid our debt? (laughs) Satan's very good luck. I mean, do you see a tension there? Christ pays our debt, but God forgives us our debt. You see, the scripture is clear. God forgives us our debt. That didn't mean Jesus didn't have to die. Don't go out of here saying that I don't believe Christ had to die for our salvation. He did. He did not have to die to pay a legal debt. That is not one of the reasons. One of the, that reason is pagan. That is not Christian. That is not scriptural. But he did have to die. There's a reason he had to die. We couldn't be saved without his death. But not for the pagan reason of appeasing the wrath of his father or paying a legal debt that the law demanded. Yeah, his death had multiple things to achieve. And the Bible tells us three things that he destroyed by his death. I gave you one of them already in 2 Timothy 1, 10. He destroyed death by his death. His death destroyed death. We should spend some time meditating and thinking about how does death destroy death? But it did. We can talk about that. But there's two other texts that specifically say by his death he destroyed something. Anybody know what they are? Him who holds the power of death. It's him who holds it. Hebrews 2.14. That he took upon himself human flesh that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. So now we have him destroying death and the one who holds the power of death, that is the devil. Two things that his death accomplished. The destruction of Satan and the destruction of death. And the third thing, 1 John 3.8. He destroyed the devil's work. By his death, he destroyed the devil's work. And what is the devil's work? The devil has worked. Well, he has lied. That's true. There's no question. But his work, his his goal, what he has been working to do with all those lies is to efface the image of God in mankind and replace it with Satan's image in, in mankind so that we no longer reflect the character of God. We reflect the character of Satan. That was his work, to make us look like him. And Christ destroyed the devil's work by perfectly reproducing Christ's like character God-like character, the law of love, perfectly in the human being, in the human brain. And all three were destroyed by Christ. These are accomplishments. So who's winning that battle? Christ has already won it for the human race. Understand, Jesus Christ is a real human being. He, he became part of this creation. When Jesus Christ won his victory at the cross, the human species was saved. See, as long as we have one panda bear, panda bears are not an ex- extinct. Because of Jesus Christ... Because of Jesus Christ, there will always be a human being in existence. Now, the question remains, how many other specimens are willing to join him? That's why it says in the scripture, through one man's sin, all became sinners, or death came to all. Through one man's righteousness, many will be made righteous. Not all, many. Because all won't accept it. Apparently, it looks like the devil's going to come back right now. Uh, only, only when we see each of us as individuals. When we see each one of us as an extension. Have you ever seen a family tree drawn out? It's all connected. And just like a tree, if you go back to its source and you infect the source, the root, all the branches get infected, don't they? Okay. When Adam infected himself, all of his descendants were infected. We're all extensions of Adam's life. This is what Paul's making in Romans very clear. There was one Adam and Christ was the second Adam. Uh, Levi was in the loins of Abraham paying tithe to Melchizedek. Why? Because Levi is a direct descendant of Abraham. We are all descended from Adam through Noah. All born in a terminal condition with a condition we didn't choose. Christ came, took the condition upon himself, our sinfulness. He was made to be sin who knew no sin. He took our infirmities, our iniquities upon himself. Yet we esteemed him smitten by God and stricken. That's what Isaiah 53 says. He took this condition upon himself in order to what? To destroy sin, to destroy death, to destroy the devil's work, to bring all things under one head, even Jesus Christ. It says in uh, Colossians 1.18 that all things in heaven and in earth are reconciled to Christ with the cross to solidify those angels in heaven and their loyalty. 
all things. I mean, it all comes back to Christ and what he accomplished in humanity. And there's multiple permutations of this. You see, which member of the Godhead created the human species? Not that all of them couldn't. All of them could have. God the Father could have. The Holy Spirit could have. The Son could have. Do you know which member did? Jesus did. Jesus was the particular member that designed and created human species. Now, once humankind sinned, what do you think Satan started saying? Design flaw. Defective designer. You don't make things right. You make imperfection. This is a manufacturer's defect. Where's the warranty? This is what Satan is saying about Christ. That you're not perfect. You make flawed things. You made a creation that was not possible for that creation to actually live by the law of love that you said we have to live by. Christ came. One of the things he came to, many things, one of the things came to show that that was a lie. As a human being, with a human brain, he lived out perfectly the law of love. There's nothing wrong with our design. There's nothing wrong with the way he made Adam and Eve. Satan was a liar and a fraud. What do you think it means that the blood purifies us from all sin? That's what, it, that's what the, the lesson said. His blood purifies us. What do you think it means? His life. His life. Okay. Life is in the blood. His life lived out what perfectly? The law of love was lived out perfectly by the life of Christ. Where did Jesus say that his blood is to be applied? John chapter 6. Unless you drink my blood and eat my flesh, you have no part with me. So it's metaphor. He's saying, unless you take into your heart my love, unless you take my character, unless you become like me where you love God and love other people more, you can't live because this is the basis of life. So Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ, yet I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Or Peter says that we become partakers of the divine nature. We get to actually partake of the very nature of God through Jesus Christ. This is out of Thoughts on the Mount of Blessing, page 76. It says, Jesus said, be perfect as your Father is perfect. If you are the children of God, you are partakers of his nature, and you cannot but be like him. Every child lives by the life of his Father. If you are God's children, begotten by his Spirit, you live by the life of God. In Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, Colossians 2.9. And the life of Jesus is made manifest in our mortal flesh, 2 Corinthians 4.11. That life in you will produce the same character and manifest the same works as it did in him. Thus you will be in harmony with every precept of his law. Because the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. And then, I, I don't have time to read this, this whole one, but Thoughts of Mount Blessing, page 49. It's in the, it's in the notes, um, talking about the law will not pass away. But it says, because the law of the Lord is perfect, and therefore changeless, it is impossible for sinful men in themselves to meet the standard of its requirements. This was why Jesus came as our Redeemer. Now notice this. It was his mission. Traditionally, what was the mission of Christ? To be our substitute, pay our debt, make the blood payment. Notice this. It was his mission... By making men partakers of the divine nature to bring them into harmony with the principles of the law of heaven. Whoa, hold, hold on, say that again. It was his mission by doing what? By making us partakers of the divine nature to bring them into harmony with the principles of heaven. What does that sound like? Does that sound like appeasement, legal payment, uh, pardon and books in heaven? Does that sound like regeneration, restoration, recreation? What scripture supports that? Well, I will take the heart of stone out. I will put a heart of flesh. We have a circumcision of the heart by the Holy Spirit. I write my law in their hearts and minds, a new covenant experience. We will be reborn, regenerated, recreated in the inner man. We'll have the mind of Christ. I mean, all the metaphors are about transformation, regeneration, restoration to godliness. That's what God wants to do in us. And Satan has got the Christian world to exchange all that beautiful transformation, harmony with God for legal pardon. That's what the Christian community wants. My record books have been stamped pardoned. Jesus has paid my penalty. What a, what a cheap exchange. Also, Isaiah said, God says, come, let us reason together. Absolutely. Notice the connection. Do you see it? Connection with reasoning with God is connected directly with cleansing. Why is that the case? Satan is the father of lies. We live in darkness. Dark, the light is shining into the darkness. The darkness doesn't comprehend it. God is saying, come, 
kick on your brain, start reasoning with me, the lights will go on, you'll be cleansed. That's good. Thank you. Yes. Another part of the why is that we're analyzing who's winning. Frequently we hear these, well, many are saved, but not all, and few versus many. And the focus seems to be, well, yeah, Jesus wins at the end, but it's pretty hollow victory. He's just got a pitiful uh, chosen his side. When you look at the Bible, though, it's a triumphal entry back into Jerusalem with a numberable host of people that he has saved. He does not have a hollow victory. Oh, no. A great multitude. A great multitude. He has accomplished what he set out for. Uh, we're really running short on time, so I'm going to have to talk fast now. No, just, just kidding. Okay, so I've got. To, I'm going to hit a couple of quick points, and we'll call it quits here. Um, in Tuesday's lesson, at the second to the last paragraph, it talks about, and I can't read the whole paragraph. It talks about forgiveness, and it says it may be that confession of sins includes also public confession before those who were hurt through our sins. Even so, the forgiveness of sin comes only from God. Now, thought about that. Would would it mean something different if we said? Forgiveness comes only for God. Instead of forgiveness of sin comes only for God. But it means something different to you. And, and my thought on this is this. According to the Bible, what will the relationships in heaven look like after all is made new? What will heavenly relationships look like? Well, no, you know, how we interact with everybody. What will it look like? Will be perfect love, won't it? Perfect love for everybody. Will you have animosity in your heart towards people? Will you be better? Will you be a grudge holder in the hereafter? Will there be perfect love from everybody to everybody? Isn't that what it looks like? All brought into oneness, into unity, atonement. All this is going to happen in the relationships. Well, have you in this room ever been wronged, exploited, sinned against, injured by somebody? Yes. Will God's forgiveness of the sinner who wronged you fix your heart and bring you to unity with the rest of creation if you refuse to forgive the offender? No. Does that mean that, that each of us has to also forgive? Yes. So not only so, so forgiveness of sin comes only from God. Well, in the sense that the way I conceptualize it is, all forgiveness comes from God, just as all love comes from God. But we are to experience that forgiveness, like we experience that love. We are to be conduits of His love. We are also then to be conduits of His forgiveness. Because unless we're conduits of his forgiveness, we won't be at unity with the rest of the universe. So we have a part to play in forgiving those who have wronged us. And if we don't, then we will be on the outs. Because we won't want to be in a place where we love everybody. So all I'm suggesting is that that God forgives sins, but we also have to be forgivers too, don't we? Yes. Okay. And then in 1 John it tells us, uh, my children... I'm writing these things so you may sin not. But if anyone sins, we have an advocate with Jesus Christ the righteous. First off, do you think when God says, to, uh, when, when John says to you guys right here, sin not, is he telling you to do something like breathe not, feel not, physically move not, which are all impossible for a living human being to do. It's not possible for you to breathe not, physically move not, or feel not. Is he telling you when he says sin not, is he telling you something that's actually impossible for you to do? Oh boy, a lot of silence on that one. Because that is the belief that we've been sold. The belief that we've been sold is you will continue to sin up until the day Christ comes. It's impossible for you to sin not. That is the belief. Isn't don't you all pretty much hold that belief? So what is Yes, we do. We've been we've held that belief. Be honest. Is that belief and I challenge you to spend some time thinking about this when when he says sin not, is he telling you to do something that's not possible to do? Hmm. So, then he goes on and says, but if you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, which traditionally gets interpreted through the pagan lens. If we have somebody pleading with him, don't be mad at him, God. I really died for them. I love them. Okay, look at me. Don't look at them, because I know if you look at them, you're going to be really ticked off. And, and just calm down. Calm down, Dad. Okay, it's okay. No, that's not what's going on in heaven. Okay, if you remember that... It is Jesus is the medium through which God is accomplishing his purposes for mankind. And when you remember that, as God was in the Son, reconciling the world to himself, the fullness of God was in Jesus bodily, all the texts support this. Therefore, when we sin, remember that in the hands of the Father is the perfect remedy, agency, medium, resource that he will wield for our restoration and healing. So if you sin, don't worry. Father has in his hands the resource needed to heal you, Jesus Christ the righteous. That's what it means.
Our precious Heavenly Father, we ask that you will wield the resources that have been achieved and accomplished for us by your Son into our hearts. Purge from us the fear, the insecurity, the self-centeredness. Let your love be restored in us. Write your law on the templates of our heart that we can love you and love others. And witness in this dark world true light, the light of your character, that minds can be set free and we can see you soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.